Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. My name is Mike Dordick. I am the president of McBee as well as SVP of Post-Acute Strategy for NetSmart. And I'm joined by an esteemed colleague that I've worked with for a number of years as a member of the HHFMA, um, part of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, Bill Dombey. Bill, for, mo- for those of you who don't know him, most of you I'm sure do, has been involved in every major decision that's taken place in home health as the president of National Association for Home Care and Hospice, is an expert in healthcare policy and law, and is involved very heavily in the industry and in making sure that we protect the benefits in both home care and hospice. So we're going to talk about the current environment, then challenges and opportunities. We're also going to go into what's changing on a policy and legislative front. There's a a lot happening in D.C. right now, and there's a lot of information that's coming back and forth on the home care and hospice world. We're going to talk about a path forward to what would the future look like. And then the final takeaways, we know since we've been in the COVID world, a couple of years now, workforce has been the biggest issue. Um, You've seen a scenario that took place before where Prior to COVID, we all had scenarios where you had the workforce and you were fighting for referrals. Now, not every patient's being seen, so we have a huge issue that we're trying to fight through. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Bill. Well, yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it and appreciate the opportunity to you know, come here with you all. What I wanted to do is kind of cover you know, what I would call mega trends that we're seeing in healthcare services at home to set the table for the discussion that Mike and I will have. You know, what's the biggest challenge? Uh, workforce. You know, we are absolutely showing that home care employers are committed to take and support all necessary actions. So the reason why we have issues of shortage in workforce is not because of the way employers have acted, very, very supportive of the workers. But what we really need to be looking at is a multidimensional integrated focus in terms of bringing about solutions to this. Yes, compensation is in the midst of all of that. And home care is competing with every other healthcare provider out there. Uh, Home care aides, for example, still undervalued when it comes to compensation. But the workforce is looking for more than just compensation. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for career opportunities. They're looking to find ways to support their biggest partner in the home, family caregivers. Uh, And Absolutely, we need some more supports around technologies to to maximize productivity. Technologies is an incredibly valuable tool. Beyond the megatrend on workforce, you know, recognize managed care is growing. Uh, Joe Namath and Jimmy Walker and Bill Shatner have all had some success in recruiting people to join the Medicare Advantage plan over traditional Medicare. We're continuing to see the proportion of traditional Medicare patients in home care uh, shrink as the Medicare Advantage population grows. Are we prepared for that? Absolutely affects reimbursement, but does create opportunities as well. One example, early stages of the pandemic. It was managed care who came out with ways of reimbursing home health agencies for virtual visits. So the value proposition with managed care and in particular with Medicare Advantage, that ultimately drives the action. So we have to be there preparing to present that value proposition. While we want to be innovative, we want to look to the future, we do have to keep our eyes on the road. And yes, in 2023, we continue to face rate cuts in Medicare home health services. Medicaid was threatened with 
uh, changes to the cap calculation. Parties are starting to look at whether the models of reimbursement fit. The you know the uniform post-acute care payment model is still in the mix. So a, a lot to be watching for in terms of those kinds of challenges. Now, where will we be in a megatrend for Congress? We've seen the House of Representatives flip from a Democrat-controlled to a Republican-controlled, leading to entirely new leadership relative to both the House at large, uh, as well as within the committees of jurisdiction. Does that spell gridlock? Or let's, let, let's hope for something different. Does that spell a better opportunity for bipartisanship? We like the bipartisanship side because we have friends on both sides of the aisle. We need them on both sides. And then our dear friends at the Medicare Payment Advisor Commission, or as some of us have relabeled it, the Medicare Payment Reduction Commission. You know, MedPAC needs to modernize its thinking. It needs to be looking at the economic models that home health care, hospice, and other healthcare providers actually operate in. There are great opportunities as well, though. You know, and I know that you've got your finger on the button with technology. Home care, honestly, ha has led healthcare in terms of technological advancements and adoption, and technologies will continue. I have this hope, and I hope in earnest, that sometime in my lifetime, you know, we see our version of Star Wars or Star Trek or even the Terminator, that we have the Carinator model of androids and robots rather than the Terminator model of that. So I, I don't see a ceiling to technology out there in terms of it, and investment will be made in that. And then we need to do something that's way overdue uh, uh, and opportunities that's particularly there for healthcare at home, both in hospice as well as home health, and that's palliative care. It is essential that we develop palliative care programs, but benefits to support those programs under Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance as well. And then the other great opportunity that's out there has been driven by your success, breaking down that continuum of care where it's not setting specific, it is level of care patient needs specific now. So we may find ourselves, and this is part of the forecast, where the demand for services in a home rises and you're gonna be making some tough decisions that are budgeting your limited staff. That brings in healthcare ethics as well as business elements of it. We hope we're not there, but be prepared to think of budgeting limited services. So ultimately, one thing that will contribute to the high demand is as payers embrace you, they will be looking for high quality and low price. Not a surprise, that's economics 101. You know, you want the best product or service at the best possible price you can get. So be prepared with the data necessary to be able to prove your value along the way. Lots of great information. Again, it's a, we have a scary outlook in some ways and a great outlook in others with the opportunities that are out there. But I'm going to start with the question that, Bill, you and I were talking about ahead of time with the, uh, the scenarios of the number of enrollees in Medicare growing, but really they're growing in managed care. Why is that happening? You have to think about the population that, that's getting to Medicare age now was used to managed care, whereas the one 10, 15 years ago were, would have been just, it was traditional Medicare and that's what, that's what they went into. So if you're used to an HMO plan or a managed care plan, it's a lot easier for when you see those TV commercials with William Shatner and other people advertising for all the great things you get from managed care. It's, it's a different world of the population coming into right now. So I think that's what you have to think about. 
Well, there's no doubt marketing has affected Medicare Advantage enrollment, but so has the ability of the plans to offer services beyond what the traditional Medicare program offers. You can't really know a Medicare Advantage plan until you see how it operates. Uh, I still think we need a very cautious eye to Medicare Advantage plans, uh, at least as they've related to care services. You know, we have not seen the kind of utilization, overall management, and certainly their pricing that they offer to, to, the, plant, to, to the providers of the services are not financially sustainable for the programs. But the, the, the reason we're seeing you know, the, the growth is not just simply coming from marketings of the plans. Policy people, members of Congress and regulators are also very much promoting it and it's not party specific. It's not Democrats promoting it over Republicans or Republicans over Democrats. There is a strong sentiment you know, of privatizing the Medicare program uh, and, and offering it through managed care plans. Although somewhat the bloom may be off the rose and some of the people who've longstanding proponents for Medicare Advantage plans are taking a closer look at how they're operating. The Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, they displayed that the plans are being, the cost for having people enroll in the plans is greater than the cost it would be to care for those same people in the traditional Medicare program. 106% of that cost in an aggregate sense. So, but the future at the moment is not a runaway train, but it's moving under a full head of steam. Yeah, it's, it's moving very quickly. And but when you think about workforce pressures, we talk about relief. Is a relief coming with the change in the labor market? I don't know if you had some thoughts related to what we may see happening related to workforce. You know, let, let me start with what we see happening in Washington to provide supports. You know, there has been legislation that has pe been pending, but little has passed so far that would have created additional payments to the state Medicaid programs on home and community-based services with the primary goal to increase compensation to stabilize the, the workforce that's there because so many of those uh, workers, caregivers are you know, getting $12, $13, $14 an hour when fast food places are paying more than that and retail outlets are paying even more, more than that. So compensation being addressed in that respect, but there's some additional legislative actions that are ongoing that would create a good strategic foundation for dealing with fixing the workforce eats today and building a better system so that they are not in crisis once again going forward. And it's not always just home care that we're talking about, but everything, including the education system. Outside of Washington, when we look at the education system from a, from a home care kind of vantage point, we are seeing some developments where schools of nursing are training individuals to be able to graduate and go right into the home care field. But that requires a lot of change in, in their educational formatting to do that because working independently in the home is a lot different than working under the structures that a hospital or a nursing facility may offer. And then there is work underway to kind of clean up the backlog of people seeking work visas to come into the country. We have nurses, you know, from the Philippines and from uh, other parts of the country uh, of the world going to France and Germany but they really want to come into the United States instead to help provide services here. So we've got a, a you know multi-dimensional kind of set of actions underway. I'm not sure I see pixie dust out there in any way in order to uh, make a sudden change in our workforce circumstance. 
and we're looking at payment cuts and and there's scenarios where in certain areas of the country especially i think we're going to start seeing home health deserts where, where i'll call areas that are that are more rural the agencies that 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 work in those areas right now may not be able to do that because there aren't enough patients in a in a geographic area for a clinician to see them so but when you think about what medpac's looking at and what besides them looking at the profits that that keep getting reported they that we keep seeing this constant word of cut and we see this scenario of this data they're looking at where they're saying that the industry is making too much money, but in a, in a lot of ways, that's going to hurt us in workforce. So it's, what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, the workforce and the payment rates are, are certainly intertwined. You know, if you cut money, it makes it harder to you know recruit the workforce as much as they want meaningful work and they like the flexibility, you still have to put bread on the table. Uh, so I am concerned about these rate cuts, very significantly concerned, not just for the businesses themselves, but what we have seen over the last 10 plus years now is that rate cuts in home health care have triggered service cuts to patients. It also creates a slippery slope as providers reduce the services needing to do so to just survive. You know, then the, somebody comes along and says, well, your costs are lower now. So we're going to reduce the, the rates even further, you know, rebase the rates to your current kind of cost. So we really do need a revolution relative to the, the payment rate approaches, particularly by these government programs. When you see a subsidy coming from the traditional Medicare home health benefit to Medicare Advantage and, and Medicaid, you have to ask yourself the question, how could this be happening when CMS is effectively sanctioning what the plans are doing in order to access care and what Medicaid programs are doing too. How could they be doing it with blinders on to see that these plans are paying less than cost? Medicaid program, historically always less than cost. It's like a three-legged stool and you start weakening that leg that supports Medicare home health right now and the whole thing is likely to collapse. You know, so But it also obviously tied to the compensation issues relative to the workforce. You know, people do need to recognize, though, one other thing is that it's not because they undervalue home health care or hospice services. They just feel that as the largest purchaser of the services, they shouldn't be paying the premium price or, for that matter, paying a price that subsidizes other payers. The problem being, I don't know of a single home health agency that has leverage over a managed care plan to demand higher payment rates and actually get them. And certainly, deaf ears are there routinely in state Medicaid programs when it comes to payment rates. Yeah, and Bill, I think you hit, you hit it as a, as a critical issue. And again, when you think about managed care, the challenge becomes is that the industry as a whole has not been aggressive enough with the managed care plans. We've just taken it because it's been subsidized by the Medicare reimbursement. And when we go through that process, until a group of providers, and, and again, you can call it whether it, whether you think it's it's banning against or or unfair trade. There there are in, have been markets where a group of providers go back to a managed care plan and said we're all going to drop out unless you do something. As long as there's one provider or a group of providers that have enough clinicians to see patients, and they will take the patients, we're going to always have that issue. But the question then becomes how do you how do you survive as an organization if the rates keep going down and the, and we we move things across? So ultimately, we move. Uh, volume goes from traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage. I mean, we could, again, we could spend lots of time there. Yeah, you know, and what, what's happening, I mean, the anti-trade law, you know, 
for fair relations between buyer and sellers goes both ways, but we've got independent home care companies who can't band together to boycott the, the managed care plans. You know, so they can't collude with each other to say, we want the price to go higher. That will violate the antitrust laws. But in, in a pure economic approach, there is no way that a single provider of services on their own have the leverage uh, necessary to negotiate a, a better payment rate. So that's why in 2023, we're going to be bringing this issue out right in the you know, forefront and even turning to Congress and the regulators and saying, this is not good for you and it's not good for patients and it's certainly not good for the providers of the services. We need some help in trying to figure out how to fix this, you know, uh, and, and maybe the managed care plans won't like what the fix is. I'm not sure exactly what the fix could be, but something has to change or the future, you know, uh, is problematic. And I think we've got some good support in Congress. Uh, and I know we have it among regulators as well. Bill, with the new Congress, with the Republican majority in the House, and we talk about what's actually happening in MedPAC, what do you, what do you see happening next? As I mean, obviously, when we get in, we're into 2023 as we move through the year and we look toward what they've said are going to be rate cuts. Well, how do you think that that plays out in, in the Congress right now? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a ton of forces in play uh, that's healthcare related in this. We can't ignore the fact that the Medicare trust fund is in a pretty shaky circumstance right now. We can't ignore the fact that Medicaid is either number one or number two in state budget spending. You know, and so you are going to you know continue to look at such things as recession risks and what that does for tax dollars, because tax dollars are used for both Medicaid and the Medicare program. But people will be looking at those programs uh, in terms of where their future. Uh, ultimately, you know, I still see you know a pretty positive environment favoring healthcare supports, particularly in an aging country as we have. Not in your age category, Mike, but certainly in mine. You know, we we will have the strongest, wealthiest, most populated sector of, of the age demographics in the U.S., and we're the ones who will be needing healthcare services as we age. But you know, when we're when we're looking at that, we, we we can't ignore that with the new Congress as to who's going to chair the Health Subcommittee of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, a Republican naturally being in there, Vern Buchanan, uh, Congressman Buchanan was the lead sponsor from the Republican side of our PDGM rescue legislation. You know, uh, so he, he's there, understanding where our needs are right from the from the get go on that. Uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow from the Senate uh, Health Subcommittee, S Senate Finance Health Subcommittee, you know, it announced her retirement, but she is still going to be there for two years for us in a very leading position, obviously, on healthcare-related services. You know, and we already know from talking to Senator Stabenow and to Congressman Buchanan, they are quite willing to cross the aisle over to the other party, you know, to form uh, the right coalitions to make things happen. You know, that, that may sound a very positive view of things, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, you know, to, to get there. Uh, so I think healthcare is going to be one of the big issues for this Congress over the next couple, four years, for the reasons that I mentioned on the trust fund and more. Bill, how about, I mean, we've talked a bunch about home health and home care, but how, when you think about hospice and how that, what, what's going to play out with, with VBID, and especially um, some of the legislation that's out there and, and, and our early conversations related to 
managed care. I mean, that will change and managed care will have a lot more flexibility in BBID. I mean, ultimately the, the hospice benefit the way it is today, if you're, it's all traditional Medicare, except for maybe some commercial plans that are not aged over 65. And those, those plans have a lot of rigid processes and obviously the managed care plans have more flexibility. How do you see, how is it looked at in Congress right now? And where do you see the, the, the VBID direction going? Well, let, let me start with hospice in a more general sense, okay? And, and I, I hope the hospices listening in take this the right way. Well, hospice has had a pretty cushy ride, you know, up until just recently. With great warrant, they've had that ride. And when I say cushy, it's in comparison to the way the Medicare program deals with other providers of services and, and other payers deal with other providers of services. We're going to do everything we can to keep that ride as cushy as possible, but we are absolutely seeing signs with hospice that include VBID uh, as a consideration, indicating that we have an extremely different world facing us going forward. The signs are out there that hospice is in for a new generation and hospices need to prepare for that. And I'm going to suggest whether it be for VBID related or otherwise, you know, one of the first steps hospices should be taking right now is to examine all of their own processes and their documentation of performance within the processes in order to perfect the support for a claim, to demonstrate high quality services, and then to support also the efficiencies that are there. But there are so many good things about hospice that remain out there. It is embraced by the American population. One out of every two people enrolled in Medicare that die in a, in, in a year have used hospice in the previous 12 months. That's, that is absolutely remarkable, and there's still room for more. People who elect hospice on a more timely basis, and even people with long stays, save the Medicare program money. So where does that all go? We have this bump in the road. It might be an opportunity too, but let's look at it from the bump side of Medicare Advantage getting into the hospice side of work too. Too early to tell whether VBID will be expanded. The take up on it by, you know, by, by managed care plans has been limited so far. Uh, and I think a lot of people in managed care are looking at what's happening with respect to that. You know, So the job that we all have is to make sure that when managed care does this, to the extent that they're going to do it, they need to do it right. Uh, and we we have our, you know, we have our concerns whether or not they're doing it right already. Uh, and so that we're conveying those to CMS. You know, if you were a betting person at this point, yes, the train left the station relative to the VBID program. Uh, and if the plans want it, the plans probably will get their way. Uh, we just hope that if that happens, you know, that we're also successful in making sure the plans understand the value of hospice and why hospice has to stay in the concept that it is an interdisciplinary team, you know, responsible for a bundle of care needs for the patient rather than parceling it out to try to get a cheaper price for this and for that within the service. And that it has to be absolutely patient centered as well. I mean, it is a wonderful benefit. I do not, we did not support VBID. We still do not support VBID. We, we look at hospice and we say, it has proven itself to be the most innovative part of the Medicare program. You know, build around that rather than shift it over to somebody else to add another layer into the mix. So again, you know, if we had our druthers at this point, we would not see the VBID expand. Short of that, we want to make sure the VBID program does not dilute or even destroy the hospice benefit. It deserves, it deserves our full protection. 
let's go into value-based purchasing. I mean, it's it, right now it's 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 live in, in all of home health. I think we can expect to see it in other areas of healthcare. So let's let's talk about expansion of H, of value-based purchasing, what you see happening there. Well, you know, here's the here's the best part of value-based purchasing. The home health demonstration program was one of the very few VBP programs that actually brought value. And my, my most positive explanation on that was the VBP program absolutely demonstrated that home health brings dynamic value, meaning it avoids costly hospitalizations, it avoids urgent care. You know, so it's not all about one home health being better than another in terms of efficiency, efficiently providing care in the home setting. It's all about the the effect that follows those kinds of things. And I, I think you know we're we're seeing that CMS has recognized that you don't need to put a lot at risk to get quality care results. Uh, so I see them full bore continuing the value-based program nationally, but we need to watch it. I mean, the national program is different than nine separate state-located VBP programs. You know, Oregon's competing with Mississippi and Florida's competing with Connecticut, et cetera, you know, relative to this, this program. Uh, and pro but providers of services demonstrated in the nine states that they can do better than they were doing without VVP, uh, and they can do it without being highly disruptive. Where do we see some of the regulatory pieces related to PDGM, the rate cuts um, that are out there, and, and our legislative efforts, both uh, from the National Association for Home Care and Hospice and other outlets, as we go through this year? Well, I mean, there are, you know, it's full force, full army, full armor, you know, to try to deal with, with PDGM. We will be taking a different tact this year than we did last year, where we tried to avoid, you know, the, the 2023 cut. And it's based upon, the data that's out there, that 25% margin that I mentioned earlier, you know, and instead focuses around, you know, that the money is going to patient care. But what we need to do is to not destroy the bridge that's currently there operating between traditional Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, and other programs in terms of delivering home care services. But we need to take that bridge opportunity and find more permanent fixes, both within the home health benefit, but also within those other payers who are not paying their fair share. You know, it's pretty clear that Medicaid and Medicare Advantage is getting the same high quality home health services, but they're getting it at 20% or more, less than the traditional Medicare program is paying for. We can't sustain operations with that kind of an approach, you know, uh, and, yeah, so we're changing our, our our approach to it while saying in the you know that the near term we can't cut rates, we can't do the temporary or permanent adjustments that are you know in in the mix at this point in time, you know, and that whatever it is you know has to at least maintain the status quo until we could find alternative remedies. This is a time to look past budget neutral PDGM transformation into a broader based set of remedies that look at home health care as a whole economic model, not just looking at the silo of Medicare fee-for-service. If we don't, we will continually have every single year these kinds of fights. Yeah, it's obviously, we we've, we as an industry have done a better job than what we did prior in, in, in getting advocacy out there. I mean, and I, I say this all the time and Bill will echo the same comments. When you see the emails that say, click to make sure your legislators know your opinions on it, it really does matter. 
It's not just clicking and sending an email. The staffers in those with both members of the House and the Cong and the Senate, they know exactly how many people are sending in those emails and, and the detailed comments on each issue. And the more they think that may affect them getting reelected, the more we more voice we will have as an as a as a collective group with them to make sure that we have the benefits that we need for the patients we serve. Absolutely, Mike. And one of the first things we expect to see on PDGM is Senator Stabenow calling for a hearing or an investigation to take a deeper dive look at PDGM included within that, the broader look as well. Can we validate, and I know it will happen, can we validate that these other government payers are being subsidized by the traditional Medicare program? And can we further then validate what we believe to be the case? You know, if you mess with the traditional Medicare program without solving those others, it creates jeopardy on risk of, uh, at risk of, on access to care for all patients, not just the Medicare, you know, traditional or Medicare Advantage or Medicaid patients. This is an area that we talked a lot about a year ago, um, the sniff at home programs and the, that that benefit that we thought had a 50-50 chance of passing. Uh, where does that stand? Is there much much movement there? Well, it's going to have to be reintroduced into legislation because everything from the last Congress is now off the books on a going forward basis. And Senator Stabenow, who was our lead sponsor, along with Senator Susan Collins and many others, you know, uh, and then the House of Representatives as well on this, you know, they want to move forward with it. We do need to do some work around it. What surfaces the main problem was the reimbursement model was tied to the volume of personal care services that were given to the patient. And the higher level of service, the more money that would go to the patient. And that finds itself, you know, uh, butting up against, well, what's the traditional Medicare benefit supposed to pay for on such things as home health aid services or personal care? Where's the line drawn before it goes over to the, the sniff at home side of it? So there, there's continuing interest but we, we, we need to evolve the, 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 the actual benefit structure in order for it to have traction going forward. You know, we at NAC are absolutely committed to this. It is, it is a modernization that's way overdue in the program. So when you think about um, deal making with these rate cuts, what is your, what is your view of like, I mean, we've seen merger and acquisition slow. We've seen number of providers decrease. So some of that's related to merger and acquisition. Some of that's related to closures. What's your view on where that stands and how the how the House and the Senate see those things? I mean, right, right now, I guess, from my view, until they see what I'll call a, a, a area desert where, they, where there's no providers, it's probably not going to become an issue to them. But what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, and MedPAC helps fuel some of their understanding of it. And we need, we need to med clarify it. I mean, MedPAC's report you know, showing that there are at least two home health agencies in every zip code. But when a zip code comprises 25,000 square miles in Montana, you know, it, they could be available to five square miles of, of patients at that point. So we need to get that you know, taken care of. We are also seeing some things that need to be addressed. Uh, places like California have had a surge in the number of home health agencies, uh, as well as even a double that for hospices in, in just you know, mainly the LA area. Uh, so we're not seeing deserts in certain areas that those are raising some program integrity concerns, but to, to give it some kind of quantitative uh, context, we still have over 11,000 home health agencies operating across the country. When we were down to 6,400 back in the year 2000, 
and, and so there's been a, a you know a net growth that is is quite significant. And when you're dealing with members of Congress and even regulators, it's hard to get them to go below a surface level assessment. So you know we 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 are going to get a handle. We're going to be continue to to describe where those deserts are today. And they're clearly emerging, particularly, as you said, in rural areas. But we're very concerned about the disparity side of healthcare too. There are parts of metropolitan areas where we have very difficult time accessing services uh, and that, that may be you know, safety-based or they may be in other ways affecting low-income people more than they are everybody else. So uh, I think you're right, though, that you know, Congress in particular does not seem to rise to the challenge until it reaches a crisis proportion. And that's what we're trying to avoid here. Yeah, I mean, I agree. We, we need to get to it before it gets to that crisis, because ultimately, I mean, when I looked at numbers, I know Bill, you and I have talked about this, of, of the 11,000 providers that existed, I mean, the numbers I had were there was less than about 8,600 that actually submitted claims in the first quarter of 2022. And, and so. that's actually an area we've asked CMS to focus in on. You know, there should not be a provider that has no services being provided, still having a Medicare participation agreement, not only misleads, uh, you know, uh, the, the Congress and regulators, uh, it's, it's just, it's not the way to run the, the, the Medicare program. Uh, and and we, we've called for that approach and most recently called on Medic, the Medicare Payment Advisor Commission to revise their data analysis too, because they're looking at participation uh, agreements, not actually providers who are delivering care. Right. And, so, and there are some states where you need to have a Medicare license in order to provide Medicaid services. So there are some reasons for it. But to me, there's there's just a backlog of people that have either decommissioned or not being not going through that process that, that is, yeah. is affecting some of the legislators and what they're yeah. doing. Um, what what advice would you give the listeners here for as they head to 2023 and 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 beyond? What, what do you what do you feel is the most important areas? And we've hit a lot of them. But if you had to summarize for the group, what would you think? Well, you know, I mean, you offered one, uh, be engaged, be engaged in terms of the advocacy side of it, engaged otherwise, you know, uh, in terms of education, be engaged with your own staff in terms of mentorship. Uh, the other item, and, and, and you know, I, I have said this many, many times about keeping your eye on the road uh, while also allocating some of, some of your great energies and intellect to the future, because Sometimes the world can pass you by if you don't. You know uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean you want to run a red light in order to get to the future, but you also want to make sure that you know it's on the other side of that red light and 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 be there to have effect on it as well. The the last thing to mention may may be less practical than that, you know, but but it is recognize yourself in all of this and and the values that you bring in, into the delivery of healthcare services out there. Because that will give you the confidence uh, to, to know that you will move forward. You will be making gains despite any of the challenges that are out there. Uh, and then, then the last one I'll, I'll offer, Mike, and this will sound like it's way too more of a repeat. You know, don't, don't assume what you're doing is right. Re-examine it, including documentation, uh, you know, because we all know what happens too often when you assume. Yeah, I mean, I'll add a couple of things as, as we close out here as well. It's really important for you to look inward into your organizations and, and determining what you're doing really well and what you may not be doing as well. I mean, you think about 
the scenario is if we're in a workforce shortage, which we know we're going to, we're in and we're going to be in, if there are certain programs where you know you're delivering superior clinical outcomes and you have financial implications, financials that are producing well, double down on those. And if you have other ones that you may be doing because it's important to the community or it's some, you're part of a health system and you're taking patients because you need to, if you're not seeing every patient that you can today, and you're seeing patients that are that you're seeing you have programs that are just not as as you're not stacking up in the in the communities or in the competition, you may need to look at it becoming smaller to become larger. I mean, it's something that especially if you're a not-for-profit, is it, you always talk we people we talk about mission, and I've been in, in the CFO role at not-for-profits and, and prior. The mission can't function without the dollars that are there. I'm talking about just double down and do things where you're where you're doing it very, very well. And, and just expanding that and, and potentially cutting service areas that if it, if it helps your organization overall, you may need to look at that differently than you did three to five years ago. I want to thank you guys at NetSmart. You've been great partners with us at NAC and, and McBee as well, to credit McBee Associates for this and your great team you have at McBee. Uh, and this is this is the other part of it. You know, as I'll offer a, you know my last final lesson learned kind of a thing. You know, NetSmart, McBee Associates are as much involved and essential to the provision of healthcare services at home as are all of the people who are actually delivering the care, uh, business partners with them. That sounds like a promo for you guys. Well, no, it's giving you credit where credit's due. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate Bill joining and, and great insight today. Thank you, everyone. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.